Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, today we're going to be looking at a subject that that I started thinking about in terms of a, a broader question. And the question is this. Are there unexplored frontiers in, a, in understanding what human emotions are? When you think about human emotions, that, that is something that's studied by psychology and sometimes mm-hmm. by neuroscience. But it seems like territory where – we we just assume we've got all the basics down, right? We know what all we know: happy, sad. We know contempt. We know disgust. We, you know, there, there's a broad range of basic emotions, and we just think it's intuitive that yeah, we, we've got names for all of them. We understand basically what they are. We've felt them before, but there is, of course, something that we all know that that there is a a feeling understanding gap that we can feel things without necessarily understanding what they are or why we're feeling them. It's why we're sometimes like surprised by our own emotions. Like when you discover without realizing it that you'd been falling in love with someone Hmm. or you discover without realizing it that someone actually really gets on your nerves and, you know, it's finally all coming into focus or, you know, all kinds of feelings like that that you can feel for a long time before you have any kind of cognitive awareness or ability to describe or put a name to it. And it it makes you wonder if there are whole emotional states that we go through. We feel them, but we don't necessarily have a language for them or or an understanding of their relationship to external stimuli and the symptoms they produce in the body and the mind. Yeah, there's a great deal of complexity to this because on one hand, yeah, there's just the awareness of self, uh, being able to enter at least into moments of awareness, moments of self-awareness. And then there's, of course, this idea of being aware of your awareness and how that changes your ability to self-reflect and there are varying degrees of awareness as well. But, uh, you know, I was I was thinking a little bit on this and I feel like to a certain extent, it's kind of like transparent anatomical overlays that you'll find in like an, an anatomy book, you know, where like the, the, the base is the skeleton and then you have like a, a transparent overlay that then puts, um, I don't know, the circulatory system and then you, you know, add other systems or muscular layers on top of that. You're getting very tool album art on me, Robert. Right. Ob- yeah, I know your mind. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, this has also been uh, explored in, uh, in tool album art as well. Yes. By the excellent, uh, the excellent visionary artist, Alex Gray. Of course. Yeah, but there is actually something pretty interesting about that art, which is that it layers real anatomical strata of things you would see like muscles and blood vessels and nerves and all that with other things that are non-physical. They're you yeah. know, abstract. It layers on sort of concepts of the soul on top of the body in another transparent overlay. Right. And so I, I can't help but think about that in terms of feelings, language, and awareness because there's certainly the experience of an emotional state uh, that we have. And then there is another transparent la- uh, page that we can put on top of that, representing like a person-shaped word cloud that provides a definition and an an analysis as well of what I'm feeling. Though perhaps, uh, you know, we also need a second uh, overlay to really have uh, captured that second part, you know, what what our culture is saying about what we think we're feeling Mm -hmm. and how we should feel about it. And then on top of all this, we have awareness and the awareness of awareness and the the knowledge uh, that this entire page is going to turn, that uh, this state, whatever it is, if it's is going to be fleeting, no matter how much we want it to last forever, or how much we dread that it will last forever. And I, I, I think it can sometimes go something like this, right? I feel something. And then my language gives that feeling a name, say sadness. And then my culture tells me, that say sadness, that sadness that I'm feeling is inappropriate for my gender or inappropriate for a given situation, etc. And, um, and then I yearn for other labeled emotional states. And somehow this, uh, this linguistic tag does not summon the emotion I want. It doesn't generate it out of nowhere. And then I'm sad and ashamed for being sad. Um, so I, basically, the, the short of it is there's, there's this uh, relationship between how we label our emotions and the emotions we feel. Uh, and also it, it, it does that thing that, that language does, right? We're able to tag something for further study. We're able to take something that is difficult to explain 
uh, we put a, a single label on it, and then we can discuss that label in comparison to other uh, subjects and other examples, etc. Well, yeah, once you name something, you can start to figure out what it is and what it is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you didn't have a name for the thing, it's a lot harder to – start trying to describe the characteristics it does or doesn't possess. Yeah, and like as a as a parent I have encountered this, you know, where my my son is feeling something and either, you know, he doesn't have the the self-awareness and and uh, self-reflection to really think about it yet or or perhaps he doesn't even have a good word, a good description for what it is he's feeling. Mm-hmm. And you have to sort of try and try and walk them through what they're feeling and try to get them to identify it so that you can discuss it so you can get to the bottom of it to whatever extent you can. I think that naming of things, especially naming of internal states, can have tremendous and often – well, tremendous positive and negative power. Uh, One example of positive power I think of is – I'm not going to say who, but just somebody I know. At one point when they became aware of the psychological concept of rumination, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the process of repeatedly going over cycles of negative thoughts in your mind and entertaining worst possible scenarios, just becoming aware that that was a concept that was already known of and had a name had a lot of power for this person to help them overcome it, when it was affecting them because suddenly they, they didn't just think, oh, I'm doing this terrible thing again. They thought, I'm ruminating. Th- right. This is a psychological symptom that's negative and they felt it was easier to break out of the cycle after uh, knowing the word for it. Exactly. And to come back to sadness, uh, for example, like it's one thing to, th- to realize I am feeling sad. Mm-hmm. But then language allows us then to focus in on more specific versions of that, saying, you know, not only am I feeling sadness, perhaps I'm feeling the particular sadness of loss or rejection or homesickness or defeat or alienation. Um, and, and then we can we we can better utilize our our own minds and even uh, resources either in the community or in just sort of the, the general human uh, um, you know world around us to try and figure out how we should react uh, and or solve the situation at hand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that makes me think of another thing you're sort of alluding to there, which is that when you have a name for an internal state. That helps you find other people who also experience the internal right. state because you sort of have a common search term or something that you can use to get together and figure out, oh, OK, and you can compare your experiences with others. Uh, and of course, you know, again, this cuts both ways. I'd say overall it's probably a positive thing to have names for internal states like this because it can help people find solidarity, get advice from other people who feel the same way they do. But it can also lead to, you know, people uh, finding one another based on like anger-based or, you know, negative internal states and and building a kind of negative solidarity of stoking one another's bad emotions. Right. Or what happens when you have a legitimate emotional state – but the terminology you end up using to describe it is is not helpful. Say say that you end up using like say highly religious terminology to describe these things mm-hmm. that in some cases may not provide a lot of tools for dealing with it. Like what if you broadly categorize various emotional states as being sinful? Mm-hmm. Um, well, then that means that your only ways of really addressing whatever you're feeling lie within the religious doctrine uh, that you are um, – in which you're classifying everything mm-hmm. uh, and, and limits you in that respect. Or believing that, say, a, a state like depression or something consists of having a demon. Right. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, I, you can certainly understand why it could feel that way. And yet on the other side, there are examples of, of personifying negative emotional states uh, that can be liberating, you know, being able to say personify one's fear and then reject it. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's certainly when you're talking about human emotional states and our awareness of them and our dealings with them, there's a great deal of complexity here. There's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all. We're not going to be able to unwrap all of these questions today, but we will discuss an emotional state that has largely gone unnamed, at least in the English language. Yeah, at least if uh, this group of researchers that we're going to be talking about today are on to something. So I came to this topic today of, of emotions that we don't yet have names for by reading an article in Eon by the psychological anthropologist Alan Fisk, who is a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. And in this article, 
Fisk summarizes a bunch of research that's been going on in the past few years, a lot, a lot of which he's been a co-author on, um, which he believes identifies an extremely important everyday emotion, not something unusual, but something we all know, we feel all the time that's incredibly important to our lives, that's been with us all along, but that he argues has not been recognized as distinct and unified as an emotion in itself and instead has been called a lot of kind of other things in its different different facets. And the term he uses for this emotion is kamamuta, K-A-M-A-M-U-T-A. So what exactly is kamamuta, as Fisk would argue? The term kamamuta comes from ancient Sanskrit, in which it means moved by love. So this emotion of kamamuta is a social emotion, and Fisk describes it as an emotion evoked by the sudden intensification of communal sharing. Now, this doesn't just mean sharing in the sense of like sharing your toys or sharing your Kit Kat bar or, uh, you know, sharing the payout from the bank heist, <laughs> uh, though all of those could probably be moments that would evoke Kamamuta. But this is a broader sense of sharing. This is what Alan Fisk has called in other work uh, communal sharing relationships. And that's briefly defined in one of his papers as relationships, quote, in which participants feel that in some distinctive way they are equivalent, belong together, care for, and trust each other. So it, it's sort of like a, a, a strengthening of social bonds and a signaling of trust and, and, and mutual caring. This is why you do trust falls <laughs> at your place of work, right? <laughs> you know, you would think – this makes me think of a funny thing I, I kind of want to come back to in later in the episode, which is like ways that if this is truly a unified emotional experience in the way they're describing – uh, ways that it is definitely exploited in in like uh, in business and in media. Mm-hmm. One thing that I know you and I have talked about before is all the things that love to tell you they're your family but are not your family. Right. Like your workplace that says like we're a family. And mm-hmm. it's like it, I understand that can be a nice thing to say. Like you're trying to say, you know, oh, you should feel belonging here. But, you know, people actually have families that are families. Or, you know, if Olive Garden says when you're here, you're family. <laughs> th- there's something in common. There. They're trying to do something to you. What is that thing they're trying to do? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they're, they're co-opting the idea of family. Or and here's another one. The Saw is family. Uh, <laughs> the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, uh, uh, series, uh, franchise, uh, will sometimes pull that one out. And they're like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is, but probably not. Oh, no. Drayton's being manipulative when he <laughs> says that. He's trying to turn Leatherface into a bitter old woman hater like he is. But okay, okay, okay. So there, there are lots of separate emotional states that we recognize that Fisk argues actually all share the features of this one unified thing that he's proposing, this unified state of kamamuta. And so different examples of, of words people use for this thing that he actually says is all the same thing is being moved, being touched, team pride, patriotism. Being touched by the spirit, burning in the bosom, the feels, I like that. Or uh, he says also, when evoked by memory, it's nostalgia. So that's a lot of ground to cover. I I feel, for instance, I feel nostalgic when I think about movies from, say, 1986. Uh, I feel a sense of communal belonging when I'm, say, in church or I'm in a yoga class. And when I'm hugging my wife and child, I feel something that I, I might describe as as loved belonging or to some extent, you know, structural completeness. Yeah, there are obviously a lot of different scenarios here that he's saying are all going to evoke this one emotion he's talking about. So maybe we should drill down into the details of how he describes this emotion and its symptoms in order to understand better what exactly it is he's talking about. So, all right, let's roll through it. Well, wait, no, maybe we should take a break first, and then when we come back, we can we can look at the features he lists. All right, we're back. So we're talking about Kamamuta, and we're going to begin to roll into the six features uh, that occur together in this uh, broad categorization of emotional states. Right, as as argued by the anthropologist Alan Fisk. Uh, So there have been a bunch of studies on this. We're going to look at a few of the studies individually in in a moment here. But just to start off at at the top level, what are the main takeaways? Fisk argues that Kamamuta is described by six features that occur together. And he says, so first of all, 
it's evoked by, quote, the sudden intensification of communal sharing. And again, sharing, that's not just like sharing materials, but this thing that I mentioned earlier, situations where participants feel in some distinctive way that they're equivalent, belong together, care for, and trust each other. Uh, broadly, situations that we would describe as examples of love. And to a certain extent, you could you could think of this as a you could think of communion as an example of this, right? Sure. Um, or you could think of a, a potluck dinner as an example of this. You know, I don't know. I guess one of the things is that it has to spark that feeling, right, for it to be real. You could have an overly ritualized version of anything that is then devoid of the emotional resonance. It makes me think of the Eddie Izzard joke about uh, singing Hallelujah in the Anglican Church. No, no offense to Anglicans. You know, mm-hmm. I have great love for the Anglicans, but uh, you know, he he's got this whole bit about them singing Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the point he makes is a good one, which is that like something that's supposed to be an overwhelming outpouring of spontaneous joy can, if ritualized in, in a certain kind of way, become rather drab. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Because on the other end, end of, uh, of it, um, when people come together in song, like that is a that is a great way to potentially feel this shared emotional state. Absolutely. Because we are becoming one voice. Okay, so it's evoked by this sudden moment of communal sharing where you feel a belonging, a trust, and a love with other people. But the next point he says is that it very crucially, this emotion is brief. He says it typically lasts less than a minute or two, though it can keep repeating in rapid succession. So, like, you'll get a burst of it. It's less than a minute or two long. You can do it again, but it's not something that, you know, lasts all day. And I think this is one thing that uh, uh, that makes it very important here. It's distinct from love itself, the way Fisk describes it. Uh, Fisk uh, says the important distinction is that love is an enduring sentiment. It's more like a, a kind of like semi-permanent state of affairs that sticks with you but beyond the moment to moment. Yeah, I mean, it's always important to remember that, that love endures even as a variety of emotions play out. Uh, not to say that love is impervious to fleeting emotional states, uh, but it does not inherently vanish when happiness fades or anger seeps in, etc. Yeah, and that's one of the really interesting and special things about love, right? That you can like love somebody even when you're angry at them or right. something like that. Uh, but but in contrast to that, he says Kamamuta is this intense momentary flare-up of emotion that occurs when love is shared. So when something happens that signals that the sharing of love has intensified. And again, this love can be between two people. It can be between a deer and a dog. It can be between – seriously, you know, all these videos on oh, the yeah. internet of like a deer and a dog playing together. In Fisk's terms, these are pure Kamamuta. To porn, hmm. we're we're just watching these moments of like uh, of social reciprocal trust and bonding between you know species that you might not expect or something, or it can be not even that personal. It can be between a large group of people who feel solidarity and common purpose. A big thing that features into this is the invocation of Kamamuta in political contexts, like, say, in a demonstration or a march. Mm. Uh, people will often feel the exact same symptoms we're about to get into that that are described as typical of Kamamuta, this, you know, burning in the bosom for, for a feeling of togetherness with all these people who share a common purpose. Now, on the, the detail of it being fleeting, uh, I wonder if it is fleeting because, like other emotional states, it kind of eludes awareness. Uh, I always come back to the Cormac McCarthy quote. I think this was from All the Pretty Horses uh, that goes, quote, if you want to see it, you have to see it on its own ground. If you catch it, you lose it. And where it goes, there is no coming back from. Not even God can bring it back. And the metaphor that he's exploring here is that of a snowflake, that you cannot catch the snowflake. You can only experience it in the moment and you can't catch or keep it. And that's often what it feels like with happiness, right? You're feeling good. Then you think, hey, I'm feeling good. And then you then it begins to run away. You know, it's like don't look directly at the happiness or you will scare it. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, w- w- one of the things is that 
I don't think you can improve a moment of happiness by examining it. Mm -hmm. But I do think by examining happiness generally, maybe that can be a good thing. Like if if you try to look at any individual moment and become analytical about it, it undercuts the emotional power of it. But maybe it is good to have a pre-existing understanding or awareness of emotional states that come from examining previous versions of of that emotion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think – Understanding the fleeting nature of happiness is 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 key to being able to have a healthy relationship with happiness. Yeah, um, like you you don't get happy by by thinking about wanting to be happy, right? <laughs> but I, I also don't want to make it. I don't want to imply though that happiness is disrupted by awareness that you would necessarily just remain on this happiness high if you weren't able to then to self reflect on it because I don't think that's the case. Right. Uh, I get the impression that these bursts of kamamuta, if we're going to, to, to use that, uh, that term, um, they are supposed to be bursts. Yeah. Well, like all emotions. I mean, all these emotions mm-hmm. are fleeting. That's what makes, again, these individual emotions different than these longer sentiments or states that we hold in our minds like love. Right. I mean, it comes back to sensory uh, information as well. It's like when you taste a strawberry, you're not happy for six years straight right. following a year. It's a <laughs> burst of flavor, a burst of understanding. And, uh, you know, it, it, it makes sense to, that, uh, that our emotional states would, would follow similar patterns. Okay. What are the next uh, four characteristics? So we've got that it's evoked by the sudden communal sharing. We've got that it is brief and fleeting. Uh, The next thing is, of course, that it feels good. (laughs) This emotion is inherently pleasurable and people seek whenever whenever they're able to repeat it. They want to keep having it over and over. Right. And if you can monetize it, all the better, right? Uh, No, all the more evil. so, so it feels good. It's naturally pleasurable, uh, even though, and it, though there's a thing that uh, it's often part of a bittersweet kind of feeling. Something that yeah. we do have a, a name for that it feels good, even when being kind of in the near proximity to or the context of recognizable negative emotions like sadness. Yeah, we've talked about this in the show before in context to say nostalgia. Yeah. Um, there's something else we talked about recently. Uh, there being like the bittersweet aspect to it. Um, was it? Oh, it was thankfulness. Oh, yes, yes. of course, gratitude. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a sense of there's a vulnerability to these moments, uh, such as like embracing family members. Like yeah. there is like this sort of hyper like meta feeling, like all the all the possibilities, all the potential potential and an actual past and future joys and sadness and tragedies, all just bundled up into a single snap of the finger, you know? Yeah. Uh, you kind of feel all of that at once, uh, which can be overwhelming. Like, imagine if that didn't, if that wasn't just a burst. Yeah. That would be, uh, I mean, it, it can be overwhelming even as a burst of emotion. Okay, the next thing that the research has found here is that Kamamuta is accompanied by a very consistent characteristic set of physical sensations in the body and physical symptoms and behaviors. So one is a warm, fuzzy feeling in the center of the chest. Another is uh, is tearing up, of course, is crying, moistness in the eyes. Another is being choked up, a lump in the throat, which often goes along with the the tears in the eyes. Another is chills or goosebumps. Uh, one is a smile or putting a putting a palm on the chest, and one is the expression, especially in English, of awe. <laughs> yeah, awe is a big one because when we when we, we we coo awe at the sight of a kitten, we are we're generally inviting those among us to share in this moment with us, or mm-hmm. we are you know we're signaling solidarity. Uh, with it, you know, when we with the kitten, with the well, kitten, or the you know whatever the the cute uh, embodiment happens to be. That's a good point. Oh, we should come back to that in a minute because I feel like cuteness doesn't fit into this framework quite as obviously as most of the other things that trigger it do. But I think there might be good reasons, and I think you're definitely onto something there. Uh, so uh, the next thing is that it actually is a motivating emotion. It motivates devotion and Fisk says uh, compassion to communal sharing, also known as loving kindness. Hmm. So it uh, generally like what, what these studies have found. One of the studies I was looking at so is if you show – 
people video of two people having like a, a communal sharing experience that causes this emotion in the viewer. The viewer also feels an increased sense of community with the two characters, these, these other characters being observed. And then another one is that there are common types of expressions across many languages that that basically translate to something like this. It means uh, like uh, being moved in its various translations or mm -hmm. being touched in, in various translations. Like that all often refers to something having to do with this idea. So I want to say at first glance in reading about this, I, I resonate strongly. Like I know exactly what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know if it is that we needed a new term for it. Maybe we did. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm decided on that issue or not. But uh, I, I'm not sure what term you would use otherwise. Maybe you could just try to lump it under one of these sort of capturing it pre-existing things like like feeling moved or something. Uh, yeah. that, that might be kind of broader than than what exactly this is talking about. Uh, but this this experience and all of the aspects of it that he lists feel absolutely real in my own experience. Oh, absolutely. The the um, the, the emotional experience uh, is certainly real. Uh, any disagreement we have is just about like to to what extent this categorization is useful. Uh, to what extent we can actually group all of these things under this big umbrella mm -hmm. of Kamamuda. Yeah, I, I think I'm undecided about that, but we can explore it more as we go on. Uh, by the way, none of this is to be confused with the Muda scale. The Muda uh, scale. Yes, which uh, any, anyone out there who is a pro wrestling fan might be familiar with. Uh, Muda scale is an unofficial means of measuring how much blood a pro wrestler has bled via <laughs> blading or juicing. That's when uh, a, uh, a professional wrestler uh, will intentionally uh, cut their forehead with a razor. Uh, or sometimes there is more like of a hard juicing technique where it's by actually bumping into something. But Ugh. they will uh, intentionally usually uh, uh, cut themselves on the forehead. Uh, the blood will flow. The blood will mix with with sweat and create quite a visual display of a bloody face or a crimson mask as it's sometimes called. Uh, I feel like this is not something you're supposed to do in the main circuits, right? Um, or it's, is? it's not done as much these days, certainly uh, in – you know, modern pro wrestling companies, like mm -hmm. mainstream pro wrestling companies, uh, because, of course, there are a number of objections one can make to intentionally bleeding all over the place, right? Right. But on the other hand, it is a highly physical performance, and therefore people will get busted open uh, accidentally, and sometimes the show goes on despite uh, a little blood. Now, is the Muda scale named after – does it come from Sanskrit? No. It comes uh, – <laughs> basically, it's of Japanese origin because it's referring to a pro wrestler, a legendary pro wrestler out of Japan by the name of Keji Muto, who would also uh, perform, especially in the United States, as the Great Muda. And it's referring in particular to a 1990 New Japan Pro Wrestling match with Hiroshi Hase in which Muda uh, blades and just gets a really brilliant uh, crimson mask all over his face. His face is just covered in blood. And so a it lot of – It looks like Kane. <laughs> yeah, it, it does have that kind of – it, it, it reminds one a lot of various um, – you know, uh, uh, face painting uh, scenarios. But it, it had such an impact on pro wrestling fans of that time period, they kind of decided this would be the starting point for considerations of any blade job. Uh, you know, where is it on the Muda scale? Uh, is it like a three or a four? Does it go beyond uh, uh, the, the type of bloodletting that uh, that Muda shows off in this match? Um, so, yeah, it's different from Kama Muda. But at the same time, I think the, a given scenario uh, like this match, uh, you could have the performer themselves feeling a sense of Kamamuda. You could have the audience viewing this spectacle, uh, certainly feeling a, a, this communal sense of Kamamuda. You know, you're all a part of this big sporting event. It's kind of a yeah. – almost a – you know, it's not quite patriotism, but like a unity of love for the performance or for one of the two or both performers. Oh, I think it's absolutely there in fan communities of things. Yeah, people feel a solidarity with their fellow fans based on their shared interests. There's an there's an inference of kind of like shared values and common cause, even if that might not necessarily be the case, it kind of feels that way. Right. Like when if you're a pro wrestling fan, if you knew what the Muda scale was, you knew who the great Muda uh, is, then perhaps when I mentioned it, you felt a, a little bit of that. You felt this connection to me and you knew that we, we shared something in this uh, this brotherhood of blood. <laughs>
All right, on that note, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we will jump back in to the Kama Muta. All right, we're back. Uh, I figured we should just take a brief glance at a few of the studies out there in uh, in the journals about Kamamuta, this this emerging idea of this this unifying emotion based on the intensification of communal sharing. Uh, so the first one is, that I wanted to bring up is by Fisk et al. in Emotion Review, published in 2019, uh, called "The Sudden Devotion Emotion: Kamamuta and the Cultural Practices Whose Function Is to Evoke It." And this paper. Uh, Briefly, it just – it argues that, quote, cultures have evolved diverse practices, institutions, roles, narratives, arts, and artifacts whose core function is to evoke Kamamuta. And uh, it also argues that Kamamuta, quote, mediates much of human sociality. Uh, and I think this is probably right, right? I mean, whether, whether or not like the term is the right term to use, a huge amount of – uh, media and culture and art is based on this. It's like watching people in the act of this sudden intensification of communal emotion and bonding. Yeah, like I'm reminded of the various Super Bowl ads that come out, like the really emotionally manipulative ones yeah. <laughs> that have like animals coming together or people and their pets, et cetera. Um, and, and yeah, it, it brings people together perhaps in the – you know, so you can sell a product to them. But still, right. the, the, the images themselves, the idea, the story, the music, it all comes together to create this, uh, this shared feeling. Now, this paper in particular uh, does specifically mention cuteness as one of these cultural models. Oh, yeah. And we've certainly discussed cuteness on our, our podcast in the past, uh, especially as it concerns monsters and the cutification of formerly horrifying monsters. Yeah, th this is an interesting question. Like, why does cuteness seem to evoke all the same psychological and physiological symptoms as Kamamuta brought on by more traditional stimuli, which would include either like communal sharing between one person and another or communal sharing between observed others. Um, th uh, just to go quickly to another paper and then we can come back to okay. this because this has to do with cuteness. There's this other one uh, called Too Cute for Words, Cuteness Evokes the Heartwarming Emotion of Kama Muta, uh, published in <laughs> Frontiers in Psychology in 2019. And the authors there hypothesize that cuteness is a type of stimulus that makes people feel an automatic sense of communal sharing with the cute entity just based on the aesthetics of cuteness alone. It's, it's in line with some of the biological theory about the nature of cuteness which says that cuteness is a, a series of visual schema designed to make adults feel like obligated to take care of the cute thing and to watch out for its best interests. So the cute face asks you for help without any words and you just feel compelled to comply. And it's the assumption of that relationship they hypothesize that, that provides the Kamamuta link here. That's why cuteness feels in a way communal. The latest uh, cultural example of this, I think, would be The Child, um, a.k.a. Baby Yoda, from the uh, television series The Mandalorian. Which uh, Spoilers, please. Yes, now you, have, you haven't seen I haven't it. been on the internet, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible to avoid the spoiler that there is – there is a creature that is unofficially called Baby Yoda in the show. Um, it is never called that in the show. It's just called the child or the asset. And um, and yeah, you look at it and it really uh, it really pulls at your heartstrings. It's really it is really cute, and uh, it shares uh, some screen time with none other than Werner Herzog, the uh, acclaimed uh, German director and occasional actor. Also very cute. Well. Uh, more, well, no, he's he's menacing. Let's let's make no two. <laughs> let's not lie about that. Overwhelming and collective murder. <laughs> but but he, I think he explained it well uh, via Indie Wire when he was talking about sharing screen time with with the child. He said, "It is a phenomenal technological achievement, but beyond the technological achievement, it's heartbreaking." <laughs> And apparently, uh, when he learned that they were going to shoot alternate takes of these scenes uh, in case they wanted to replace the puppet um, child with a CGI child, he reportedly told them, quote, you are cowards, leave it. Uh, and ultimately, That's the Werner Herzog I love. <laughs> uh, but, but yes, um, the child is very cute and uh, the show is, is – 
terrific as well. But to come back to that uh, that paper, uh, the sudden devotion emotion, um, this is what they had to say about cuteness in Kamamuta. Quote, the fact that cuteness, vulnerability, and need evoke Kamamuta makes sense given our assumption that the phylogenetic source of Kamamuta is maternal bonding to newborns. The generativity of human Kamamuta makes it flexibly adaptive. This explains why Kamamuta occurs in response to babies, kittens, marriage proposals and weddings, rituals of solidarity, religious moments of union with divinities, homecomings and reunions, the kindness of strangers, sentimental narratives and cinema, addiction recovery groups, team spirit moments in war and sports, oratory, marketing, choral singing, making and listening to music, dancing, rowing, and so forth. I see it, though. I see it. Yeah, yeah. there is this through line in, like, all those things they mentioned that I would not have unified in my mind before, but now it's it makes sense to me. This concept is interesting to me because there is something I feel that's similar when something is very cute versus when I have, like, a moment of personal love and connection versus when I'm, I'm part of, like, a political moment that feels positive and significant with many other people. Mm-hmm. Like, those things seem so different. What would be unified between them? Why are there these similar sensations in the body and kind of feelings in the brain? Well, there's a way to bring these together, Joe, and that is uh, Baby Yoda 2020, obviously. <laughs> It's got my vote. That thing is going to be used to sell the world's awfulest atrocities. (laughs) (laughs) No. Baby Yoda is a wholly blameless creature. (laughs) Okay. uh, To look briefly at another paper that Fisk was involved in, uh, uh, another one is uh, Fisk et al. in Evolutionary Studies in Imaginative Culture in 2017 called The Best Love Story of All Time, Overcoming All Obstacles to Be Reunited, Evoking Kamamuda. And basically here they just point out that if you go back through the history of literature, one of the most common types of stories is that beloved people are separated and then they have to overcome overwhelming obstacles in order to get back together. Oh, yeah. I mean that's the, the, Ram, the Ramayana right there, the story of Ram and Sita separated and then brought back together following uh, military conquest and adventure. Yeah. Uh, I mean it's there all through ancient literature, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the novels of the Greco-Roman period. You have tons of stuff like this. Uh, But then to go into like, you know, modern manipulative cuteness cinema, I just think about how much of a sucker I've always been for stories of people being reunited with lost pets. (laughs) It's just an undefendable weakness. I remember when I was a kid – I, the end of the movie, Homeward Bound. You remember that movie? Oh, yeah. My, yeah. I wasn't a huge fan, but my sisters loved it and would watch it over and over again. It, you know, I saw it multiple times because I was a kid when it was out and big and out on video. I think it was a good thing for parents or teachers to put on, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just destroyed me, like this sudden upwelling of uncontrollable happiness and tears at the scene, spoiler alert, where this fictional trio of pets, two dogs and a cat, you know, after a great journey are reunited with they're fictional humans. <laughs> there is an excellent Futurama episode titled Jurassic Bark that evokes the same sort of feeling in me. Every time I rewatch it, even though it is, it is, you know, it is a comedy, it's a farce. And despite the fact that it expressly dodges such a reunion, like mm-hmm. the reunion between the human and the dog uh, does not occur, but it has such a, bu- a bittersweet ending where it is, it is shown that the, the, the reunion wanted to happen, I guess <laughs> you could say. And another weird example of this, uh, that, and I know you've seen this, is, um, uh, and this one probably works due mainly to the musical choice, but the ending of the Simpsons episode Radioactive Man, in which the director returns to Hollywood after this grueling experience of filming on location in yeah. Springfield, where everybody, the, pol- the, the politicians, the, the townspeople, they're all taking advantage of these poor Hollywood types. Uh-huh. And then he comes back and he's welcomed back into Hollywood with open <laughs> arms. And then uh, the Bill Withers classic Lean on Me begins playing. Uh, and then they, you know, they pan out. And it, it it's... It's a satirical moment, uh-huh. but clearly they're you know they're they're playing with this idea of um, you know of, of of Hollywood versus small town morality, et cetera. Uh-huh. Uh, but since they're playing "Lean on Me," it gets me every time. Like it makes me feel all the feels, despite the satirical nature of the content. Oh, that song is like the perfect Kamamuta song. Oh, it the, is. The, yeah, "Lean on Me When You're Not Strong." Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's about trust and depending on each other. Yeah, it's just pure uncut Kamamuta. <laughs> 
and I would also say there seem to be major genres of internet media that are based entirely on exploiting people's desire to feel Kamamuda-like emotions at the push of a button over and over again. It's like your, you know, your cocaine button in the rat cage, except it's Kamamuda, you know, the, the, the upworthy style of stuff. The video is titled like, he almost kicked a turtle into the trash compactor, but what happens next will melt your heart. <laughs> Yeah, and you want to click because yeah, I'm like, okay, I'm I want to have my heart melted. Let's do it. Yeah, but this kind of content is incredibly potent for virality. You know, yeah. when there are these like studies about what kind of content actually goes viral, uh, there's a reason that these media companies went for content like that because that stuff hits the button. I mean, I, I think because of our negative view of virality, we often tend to think of like kind of nasty memes as being the most viral content. But this Kamamuda exploitation video stuff is hugely viral. Yeah, to come back to the Cormac McCarthy quote about about the snowflake and uh-huh. the fleeting nature of the feeling. Uh, like one solution is, oh, well, well, it's all right. There are a lot of snowflakes in the air. I will just run around all day catching them and do nothing else just to get that hit after hit after hit of good old-fashioned Kamamuda feeling. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, next and luckily, there's a there's a there's a machine in my right. hand with a program uh, that is designed to do nothing but just keep clicking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I I don't know. Maybe there are downsides that I'm not thinking of. I mean, I guess it's better that people keep watching stuff like that. They go down some horrible radicalizing YouTube trail or something yeah. and end up a member of the anti-human front or whatever. Anti-human, but pro-Baby Yoda. That's, that's <laughs> where you end up landing, I guess. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay, sorry. Uh, n- next study, uh, just quickly. This is one called Moment-to-Moment Changes in Feeling Moved, Match Changes in Closeness, Tears, Goosebumps, and Warmth, Time Series Analysis, uh, published in 2018 by Schubert et al. This study looked at the moment-to-moment sensations, like body sensations of people experiencing what the researchers believe to be Kamamuda, as evoked by video clips showing scenes meant to display these intense communal sharing relationships, these moments when these relationships intensify. And uh, the study found strong and consistent cross-correlations between clips that people scored with Kamamuda-associated words like moved or touched, uh, distinct from clips that were judged as merely happy or sad. This is like a separate thing than being happy or sad. And that the Kamamuda clips were associated with this – with moment-to-moment physiological symptoms or sensations of tears or moistness in the eyes, goosebumps or chills, and feelings of warmth in the center of the chest. Mm. So again, back to what we were talking about earlier. There were a couple of studies that looked at uh, uh, cross-cultural analyses, basically like is there a similar thing going on across different languages and cultures? There was one study that looked at uh, the United States, Norway, China, Israel, and Portugal, published in the Journal of Cross-Cultural Psychology in 2018 by Sebit et al., uh, and this just generally did find that there was uh, there was a lot of consistency across the different cultures. And then there was another one published uh, in the journal Emotion in 2019 by Zickfield et al., uh, uh, looking at 19 different nations across 15 different languages, 3,542 participants, to see if there was consistency about which types of experiences evoked Kamamuda-like emotions. Uh, to read from their abstract, quote, Our results are congruent with theory and previous findings showing that Kamamuda is a distinct positive social relational emotion that is evoked by experiencing or observing a sudden intensification of communal sharing. It is commonly accompanied by a warm feeling in the chest, moist eyes or tears, chills or piloerection, feeling choked up or having a lump in the throat, buoyancy and exhilaration. It motivates affective devotion and moral commitment to communal sharing. While we observed some variations across cultures, these five facets of Kamamuda are highly correlated in every sample, supporting the validity of the construct and the measure. So it looks like this is, at least uh, according to this research we're looking at so far, this is a pretty universal emotion and that we might have some different words for it across different cultures, but the there, there's something pretty consistent going on about like what types of things we can see or be a part of and what kinds of feelings it gives throughout the body and what kind of behaviors it triggers in us afterwards. So what do we learn by naming and characterizing an emotion? Uh, we sort of started off by talking about this a bit. Yeah. And 
you know, I, I have to say that this my initial reaction to this topic, not being familiar with the, the, the particular concept, with the named concept of Kamamuta, my initial response was, what good does this do us? Why do we need this? <laughs> Um, the and and uh, you know and I'm I'm not to say that I was completely biased uh, against it, but because I'm I'm but the thing is I'm clearly already experiencing these emotional states, right? Uh, but for more nuanced reasons, with more nuanced terminology, do I really need a catch-all uh, Sanskrit term to refer to them? Uh, and uh, and that's been something I've been just trying to to figure out. Now now certainly I'm not opposed to bringing in Sanskrit terms or Sanskrit loan words or or uh, you know words from uh, say Hindu or Buddhist um, uh, um, uh, religion. Uh, you know because I think that a lot of times these are very useful terms, such as things like say Brahmin and Samsara. I think these can be incredibly helpful, uh, and and they certainly stem from a language and a culture that devoted a tremendous amount of mental energy to contemplating psychological. And metaphysical concepts, mm-hmm. but in this particular instance, does Kamamuta like really help us out? I could not help but but think of, about um, another case in which we have uh, reached out to another language uh, for a term uh, that we have they were lacking in English to describe an emotional, very specific emotional state, and that is the German concept of Schadenfreude, mm-hmm. uh, which is the pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortune. <laughs> like we don't have a specific term for it, uh, like a single word for it in English, but in German, uh, they have it. Mm-hmm. And and it is kind of useful, I, I think, to be able to take schadenfreude out of the German language and then use it as a way to reflect on how we're feeling about things in our life. Well, the fact that we now have a, a loan word for it in English, I think that makes it much easier for us to recognize when it's happening. Yeah, to say I am feeling schadenfreude and not something uh, more useful like actual sympathy, to be able to draw a line between sympathy and uh, schadenfreude despite the fact that they are very they're, they're very connected. Like, yeah. you know, it's the, the it's kind of the flip side of the coin. Um, you know, we can – this gives us, again, the power to label it, to discuss it, to pull it aside and uh, and even then lean into the more positive uh, side of the coin, to lean into sympathy. Yeah. But that brings us back to Kamamuta because instead of going from broad to specific as we're feeling with, uh, with Schadenfreude, wh- how about – how does Kamamuta help us? How does it help us to be able to go instead of from the large to the small to go from the small to the large? Well, I mean I think one thing – if they're on the right track, I mean obviously th- these researchers could could maybe be wrong about this. But you know, it looks like there's a body of research building up here that's pretty supportive of the idea that this is actually a fairly consistent phenomenon across cultures. There are these like things linking all these disparate uh, phenomena. And there are, of course, plenty of emotional states that are broad, like happiness is extremely broad. The situations that cause happiness are, are you know, un- you can't list them all. Right. But then again, nobody's coming along and saying, hey, I want to tell you about this new concept. Yeah. It's called happiness. Right. The only one thing that did come to mind that reminded me a little bit about this, though, uh, is um, via a say partial understanding of serotonin or media overuse of mm-hmm. serotonin, a discussion of serotonin, serotonin, we end up reminding ourselves of neurotransmitters in in regard to any given emotional state. You know, where certain. What, what do you mean? I'm saying like. Nobody's going to come along and have to explain to you what happiness is. Right. But at some point in your life, someone like much later, someone might have come along and said, "Hey, let me talk to you about that happiness and what you're, uh, and let me tell you about serotonin's role and how you're feeling." Are, are you saying like giving you a good explanation of serotonin's no, role, or giving you an very, oversimplified, an oversimplified version okay. of it, which I think is the version that. We often encounter, uh, certainly just in the media at large, and right. perhaps we in- encounter for the first time, combined with like, sort of I a, need more serotonin, then I can be happy. Right. Yeah. Or it's also just kind of like when you first hear about it, you may have – you'll probably have an incomplete understanding of it, and that mm-hmm. may also lean into this this understanding of it. So on one level, it's kind of a making something familiar new again with new terminology. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Kamamutas kind of – it kind of provides that. It kind of takes this sort of broad, uh, you know, area of the feels and gives them an, a new term, and then ultimately it does allow us to to potentially 
analyze it anew, to think of it in a new light without actually recategorizing it as something drastically different? I mean, I think, again, if the researchers are on the right track here, I think one thing that could be useful about it is that you, when you identify a phenomenon where, where – uh, a bunch of things that previously looked unrelated are actually very related. Mm-hmm. New cause and effect relationships occur to you as possible and you can start testing for them. So, for example, one thing that, that seems to come out of this is that uh, Kamamuda seems to, at least in some of this research, motivate a sense of increased community with the objects of whatever you're watching. So if you watch a you know, video of two people uh, having this this moment that makes you feel the Kamamuda. You feel increased community. You don't just feel the feels in your chest and all that. You feel increased community with the people in the video. I, I think another potential way to look at this uh, in a positive way would be when you don't understand what's bringing people together. Yeah. Say you turn on the news and there are some protesters and you mm-hmm. don't agree with what they're protesting about or you, you're on the other side of their protest and you need to understand them. Or if you, like me, are not a like team sports person mm-hmm. and you find everyone else in your city is obsessed with the, the local soccer team. Mm-hmm. Um, or let's say you're not a religious person and you see footage or you see friends and family engaging in a religious experience or going to church. Mm-hmm. And and you and maybe you don't completely understand what they're doing, but if you if you define it all under Kamamuta, you can look to the examples of Kamamuta that you do engage with, and then potentially have a better understanding, or at least some understanding, mm-hmm. of why people are united in protest here, why people are in a house of worship here, or why people are, are all wearing the same color and going to a coliseum here. Right to understand that you know you, you might not get what people like about sports, but there's some similarity in the feeling in the body and the pleasure that pervades your brain when you experience cute kitten videos that other people do when they're part of a team sports thing. Yeah. Everything is Baby Yoda, basically. That's (laughs) the thing to drive home. If you don't understand it, just remind yourself, that's Baby Yoda too. All right. So there you have it. Kamamuta. Uh, Obviously, we would love to hear from everybody about this because this concerns uh, a broad categorization of human emotion that we can all relate to. Uh, So hit us up with your examples, your thoughts, your contemplation on what we've discussed here. Uh, Does the term Kamamuta, does that help you? Uh, or do you feel like it is in some way a hindrance? I don't know. We're open to discussion on all of that. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. Um, the Mothership uh, is no longer with us, but you can still go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and that will redirect you to the uh, iHeartMedia listing for our podcast. But wherever you get the podcast, just make sure you rate and you review and you subscribe. Uh, these are the three acts of devotion uh, that help us out in the long run. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.